Welcome everybody to Learn With Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell. Today we're joined with Michael Gibson. He is the co-founder and general partner at 1517, which has a fun backstory to where the name comes from. Author of Paper Belt on Fire, which recently came out and will be in the show notes, is a University of Oxford dropout, which is, you know, most people drop out of Harvard in America, so it's, <laughs> it's kind of nice to have something different around here. Yeah. You've also written for a number of publications, including MIT's Technical Review. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Lowell. How did working with Peter Thiel affect the way that you run 1517? In a practical level, did you like, you know, like they say great artists steal. So I'm curious what you stole from him. Oh, <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, yeah. He's a tough man to imitate, but I uh, certainly learned a, a few principles, especially as it relates to venture investing. The first one would just be like the business model. So there's mm -hmm. something uh, known as the power law in venture returns, which means that uh, like any other fund, hedge fund or mutual fund or whatever, it's got a basket of different investments. Um, unlike some of those other categories, most of the investments fail in a venture fund. Let's say you make 40 investments, something like 38 are going to fail. And then that means the remaining one or two has to make so much money that it returns the whole fund and more. Uh, so the simple math in, in venture investing too is, is that it's, it's a very risky category. Um, and you have to, you can't just return money and make a few percentage points, uh, mm. and stay in the business. You have to, um, earn some, you know, just to keep going in Silicon Valley, you probably have to make three X on the fund over seven to 10 years. Um, so what that means is if like, for example, so when we raised our first fund in 2015, it was a $20 million fund. That means we had to return the 20 million and then make another 40 million or 60 million to stay in the bill, the business. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So now we have algebra. We know if we made 40 investments, 38 fail, let's say 39 does. Okay. So now we have to make um, 60 million in that one investment. Well, if we own 5% of a company where in our fund, we specialize in being that first money in we're pre-seed investors. At that time, we were hoping to get maybe 5% ownership of a company's stock. So 5% of a company that has to return 20 million would be $400 million market cap. Uh, so to return 60, it's going to have to be 1.2 billion. Um, mm. and, and so that's a high bar. So Peter, you know, I didn't know much about this with venture investing. There are some investors who are like, oh, okay, it's not, it's not that every company fails. It's okay, 35 fail. And then <laughs> maybe of the four or five, that do pretty good, you can make make returns. But Peter was adamant that whenever you're evaluating a company, you have to have the conviction that this is the one that returns all the money to the fund. So as a principle, when we evaluate a pitch, we always mm -hmm. have that in mind. That's just something that's now drilled into us. We got to think in terms of, is this the company that returns the fund and convince ourselves of it? So that's like the business model. I didn't know anything about that. And that definitely came from Peter. And if you Google like Peter Power Law, he actually has mm -hmm. talked about it widely. Um, it's in his book, Zero to One. The next thing would be Peter's thoughts about talent and the types of people who are creative. Uh, now, this is really obscure. Uh, Peter went to Stanford where he studied mm -hmm. philosophy, but he also took some classes with this French literary theorist, René Girard. Uh, Girard uh, started his career writing about Proust and Dostoevsky, uh, but he developed some ideas about human behavior that he then started moving into anthropology to research. 
and what happened was he 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 became fascinated by um, sort of crowd dynamics, herd behavior, mobs, uh, the madness of crowds. And Gerard uh, studied many episodes in history, mythology, and he came up with this idea about why uh, scapegoating occurs and why the the you know witch hunts uh, happen. And and he, I mean, I can keep going into that, but one of the things that stood out for Peter was that Girard focused on the types of people that mm-hmm. the crowd chooses to scapegoat. Who do they pick to sacrifice in order to bring the social crisis to arrest? And uh, you know what Girard discusses is that oh, it's interesting. Is like you see uh, in a lot of mythologies, they're like the hero is oftentimes the scapegoat. Uh, sometimes they're a victim in the story. Uh, other times they withstand the crowd and they end up becoming king for a time. Maybe they're sacrificed later. Uh, the sacrificial victim is always treated as sacred uh, in, in a special sense. And then the attributes of these people were interesting. They were never the foreigners. Like you could not be so foreign that there's no way you were responsible for the social crisis at hand. Um, on the other hand, you could never be so much of an insider that you were fully protected. You couldn't be the king's right hand, something like that. So the victim is often someone who's on the boundary, someone who's an insider and an outsider uh, at the same time. And so Peter used this, uh, of all places to get inspired, Peter used this as a observation about the types of people who found companies, the types of people who uh, make for interesting employees as various firms. And, and so in essence, that's why he hired me. I didn't know it at the time. Uh, I had, uh, I, I dropped out of the academy. I thought I was on my way to becoming a philosophy professor. And uh, somehow through a series of unlikely events, I end up in an interview with Peter and he hires me. And uh, I show up to work and I'm thinking, I'm just this unusual person that happened to be hired. but soon enough, I discovered a lot of other people in Peter's office were like me. And I, you know, I was an insider in that, okay, I had some level of academic rigor and experience, but I was an outsider in that I dropped out uh, and had different ideas than, than the typical uh, academic philosopher. Um, in my book, I go to some, you know, just because I thought it'd be interesting to make it more personal. I talk about my personal life, how I'm a bit of an insider and an outsider. I grew up in a family and and discovered that you know the person I thought was my dad wasn't, and you know someone I had a diff, I had a biological father who had passed away when I was very young, eighteen months old. So even within my own family, I was a little bit of an insider and an outsider. So yeah, that principle was something I I just saw demonstrated in Peter's office. I lived it. I worked with these people. I saw him fund these people, and now that I I'm a manager of my own fund. Uh, it's definitely one of the characteristics we we think about this insider outsider dynamic, where sometimes it's like a unity of opposites. I think this is why immigrants make great entrepreneurs. There are so many in Silicon Valley, and I think it's due to the fact that they are insiders in that here they're in the United States, they're at Sil- in Silicon Valley, Stanford, wherever. But on the other hand, they're outsiders because okay, they're seeing this country with fresh eyes, or they're bringing different traditions. And mm-hmm. perceptions to it. So, yeah, that that piece is one of the the, the big things for us. And then maybe the last one is uh, just you know Peter is not afraid to be a contrarian. And then what's more, to uh, come up with investment strategies that pursue his or express his his strange contrarian views. 
And so we run a venture fund. We, um, we, we primarily work, most of our investments are in companies that share one thing in common. And that is they are founded by people who don't have college degrees. Um, that is very strange for an investment thesis. Uh, we see ourselves as a, as a the, the venture fund is in essence is a vehicle to pursue this educational mission to show that maybe higher education isn't necessary for success. Um, so I have to give Peter credit for that too. The fact that you could build a finance vehicle uh, to pursue this crazy view about education is, is pretty strange. So mm-hmm. yeah, those three things I, I'd credit Peter with. Did uh, anything either from those three things or other things that you just solely sublimated into your personality where you were able to innovate and start something entirely new, like we're inspired to try a different practice or a process? I, yeah, okay, you know, okay, maybe here's the last thing is like he, he, and again, I thought it was novel when he hired me, but he just, he, he undervalues experience, meaning he's not, and, and this I discovered goes back to PayPal. Uh, there's a great book on PayPal called The Founders by Jimmy Sony. I recommend everyone read it. It's an incredible story because you just have this group of people, Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, David Sachs, Jeremy Stoppelman, Steve Chen, all these people built companies after they left PayPal. So you read that book, it's the story of all of them working together on PayPal. And boy, it's it's an adventure. Um, but one thing they, that Peter, one lesson he drew from that experience was that none of them had any experience in finance or banking or payments. And they said after the whole thing that they wouldn't, if they knew what they had to overcome, they would never would have started the company. And then I think so going, you know, because they had success, that was another lesson. Peter, you know, he just doesn't care that much about someone's experience. He's more concerned. Do you have the the intelligence, uh, creativity and insight to to find something new? Um, and he moves fast if he if he. So I started work and it's like he decided to launch the fellowship that day. Um, all of that came together in a matter of days. So I, these are things that I've picked up on. We're not afraid to move fast. We're not a, afraid to experiment, uh, try some new idea out on our fund. And, um, and, and Danielle and I have no business being in this business. Uh, Danielle's my co-founder. She, Danielle Strachman, she started a charter school in San Diego. Uh, it's called Innovation Academy. She was a school principal. Um, and I mentioned I was, I'm a dropout uh, PhD in philosophy. So it's no background in finance whatsoever. Uh, so yeah, I think those are some good ingredients when it comes to seeing old problems in new ways or trying new ideas out. What made you want to start 517 versus just stay under Peter Thiel's umbrella of some kind? Uh, yeah, 1517. So oh, we, um, yeah, so I, 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 Peter hired me in 2010 and um, he hired me to help him teach a class at Stanford Law School, of all things, on in philosophy and technology. Um, in the meantime, I was just going to be an analyst on this hedge fund. Um, but I showed up to work the first day and the night before Peter had come up with this idea to pay people to do things outside of school. Mm-hmm. Um, they, there were two conditions on this idea. Uh, it was a grant, $100,000 grant, but you had to be 19 and under to apply. And then the newsworthy condition was that you couldn't be in school to receive the grant. So you had to drop out, stop out. Um, and I just happened to be there on the first day. Uh, we ended up, yeah, Peter wanted to announce this at a conference he was at. I came with him in a car with another guy and we're like 
you know, what do we call this thing? <laughs> How much money is it? And then Peter's on stage and he announces it to the world. Um, so yeah, that was my first day and I got pulled into it and ended up co-running that program for its first five years. I saw a lot of great things come out of the program in that time. Uh, the most famous is, is Ethereum. We helped Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, launch Ethereum in 2013. Uh, more recently, Dylan Field, uh, he launched Figma in 2012. That made news uh, late last year when Adobe bought Figma for 20 billion. So in the first five years, we just, even though it was early, these were green shoots, we saw that there was a lot of potential here and we were just giving out grants. We thought, oh my God, we could be making money. Uh, so why don't we start a for-profit fund that pursues this idea? Uh, so Danielle, Danielle and I spun out. Now, why did we do it? Okay, that, for one, it was just the the potential for upside. <laughs> so a little bit of greed. It's like, oh my God, we could be doing quite well uh, if we do this. But there was also the mission aspect, which was the the Teal Fellowship is limited to Peter's generosity. And he's stuck to pretty much 100, oh, sorry, 20, 100K grants a year. Uh, and we just thought, wow, if we're making money, this could grow. It could become something like an endowment where we're able to help more and more people who are off the beaten path. So that was the inspiration. And uh, we, we, we launched in 2015. I named it 1517 to carry that mission forward. So that's uh, my geeky historical reference to the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. 1517 is the year that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to a church door. Some say that's an apocryphal story, but we'll go with it. Uh, and what he was upset about with the church at the time was that the, the Catholic church was selling uh, indulgences and making a ton of money to do it. Uh, they, that's how they built St. Peter's Basilica and some other beautiful structures. But they were selling this piece of paper that, in essence, just said, oh, okay, you're absolved of your sins. You give us money, we wipe away the slate, and you can be free of guilt. And, and so it's just bizarre you know, that you think you could you know, save your soul by just paying money, but people did it back then. And, uh, and, and so the analogy for us was something similar, where uh, nowadays uh, there's a piece of paper that you need to purchase at great expense. If you don't have it, you are doomed to hell. Uh, and that piece of paper is the diploma and yep. the university is the corrupt institution. So that, that was, uh, that was the inspiration there. I noticed in, I, I noticed if you wear a number or if you have a number somewhere, people ask you what it means. And that was a good signal to me that to, to roll with the number as the name. I tried it out at a hackathon, LA hackathon at UCLA and, and people seemed to like it. So we went with that. Mm -hmm. He had 95 different reasons, uh, mm -hmm. Luther. I thought, from my memory, um, I'm sure the, you know, uh, going to the highest bidder is definitely sure one of them. I thought the larger issue, or at least the thing that really pissed off the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. was that um, he was about democratizing religion and making it into a language that anyone could read. Yes, that was part of the, the greater movement, um, mm -hmm. was the, the Catholic Church... And, and still to the same, not maybe not to the same degree, but still it's the case. They they just have a greater sense of, I, I am born Catholic, by the way, but I'm not an expert. But um, uh, there's this idea that there are these intermediaries who have more authority into uh, whether it's grace of God or uh, just, you know, the scriptures and, and how to live by them. And these yeah. can be priests, there are bishops, there are all these 
various levels. But nevertheless, between any person and God, these intermediaries are going to interpret uh, the canonical texts and, um, and, and what scripture says. So I think, yeah, that really came to a head during the Reformation where people thought that, uh, wait a second, now that Bibles are being printed, not in Latin, but in, in German or um, you know French and so on, and I can read this thing because most people couldn't read Latin, uh, maybe I should decide what it means or how to interpret it or what it, what it says. And, and that really started to undermine the authority of the church. And uh, and led to all sorts of troubles, right? I mean, the the uh, the wars that followed were were quite catastrophic in, in certain places um, and deadly. But uh, but at the root of it was technology, which was the mm-hmm. printing press. So Gutenberg, it had been around for about sixty years or so, uh, but it was it hadn't really diffused all the way through Europe. And I think Luther just sort of struck at the right time. There had been people before him who had similar ideas, but they got nowhere because their ideas couldn't spread, but by Luther's time, you know, in, in essence, he was like the the first shit poster, and his ninety five theses are the first listicle of, of tweets, um, mm-hmm. angry tweets, and and yeah, they went viral. Yeah, it, it, uh, sometimes it feels like um, he not he had like the ideas that were you know, a, a bit trolly, but he also did things in a way that would garner attention. You know, if he was mm. just like, hey guys, let's meet at 3 p.m. at the Central Square, I'm going to tell you about my 95 thesis. <laughs> I don't know how many people would have shown up for that. Now he nails it to a church door. He's getting people's attention. Like, like clearly, yeah. like the, the church people could have just like taken that off and mm-hmm. burnt that in the corner, right? They, they could have hid that, but they <laughs> they were so pissed off that they just, you know, started telling everybody. So it was like free PR. Yeah, right. um, he had a flair for that. He, I guess he was also... You know, one of the I haven't read all of his writings, mm-hmm. but uh, apparently he was obsessed with with shit and feces and like calling the church like so he would use pretty you know language that normally wasn't used in this in this domain, talking about uh, you know shitting on on the church and so on and I, and that was a way to draw attention, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know uh, one of these uh, similar to what we're talking about here, but you've talked about this elsewhere. It's this idea that universities are a, a form of author validator like you have mm-hmm. like this you know badge and unless you do whatever like a merit badge or something i'm curious right. for you part for you personally what is your auth system like you know for danielle mm-hmm. your your co-founder or just in general where you're, you're meeting people how do you validate yep. someone i never want to be in a shark tank situation where i'm sitting in a room and someone just walks in i've never met them before mm. i don't know what they're about to say and then they tell me over the course of the next 20 minutes the end of which I have to make some kind of decision. I can't do that. Uh, why? Because I can't get a sense of their character, what they're capable of, what it's like to work with them. Uh, we just get, when we started the Teal Fellowship, we had applications. We were very imitative of college in a way because we asked for things like, what's your GPA? What's your test score? What school you go to? AP exams, all that. And we learned pretty quickly that those types of of stats aren't really predictive of success as an entrepreneur. Granted, uh, if someone comes in and they're pitching a really high-tech idea, we have to know that they have the smarts to build it. But there are so many other character traits that we learned to to look for because we met people who were incredible engineers, but for instance, but they were incapable of working with others. Mm -hmm. They had no social, emotional intelligence. 
Uh, they didn't know how to work with customers and learn from them. They didn't know how to pitch investors and tell a fascinating story about the company. They didn't know how to attract employees or even manage them or ultimately how to fire people. This requires a different level of uh, different style of intelligence than just you know the ability to rotate shapes and add numbers. Um, so we we learned we started to and and the other thing is like you can't pick up on this stuff in an application um, or just one meeting having a conversation. But we started doing more outbound stuff where we thought if we could collect more data points over time, then maybe we can start to draw a line that yeah. you know better defines someone's character, you know their bias to action, their ability to execute. One thing we pioneered was just one k grants. We started get we'd, we'd meet people at hackathons on the road. They tell us, "Oh, geez, you know, if I just had some money to buy these four parts, I could build this prototype, try it out." We we learned, "Oh, yeah, let's just kick you a thousand bucks," and we'd keep in touch with them over a couple months. Maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't, uh, but that gives us a sense of what it's like to work with this person. Yeah, and they get the sense of you know what we're doing, uh, and so if we have more of that interaction over time, we have a better sense of okay, do we trust this person to invest in them? Um, and, and otherwise, yeah, I don't, it's just a shot in the dark. Now, of course, sometimes it happens. Someone's makes a referral to us. We have a pitch meeting and we have to decide in, in a week or two, whether or not to invest. I, I just don't like being in those situations because it's so hard to evaluate the character. We invest so early that that's the, the, the main element in our evaluation. Um, I mentioned at the outset that market sizing related to the power law, uh, that's another element. So there are three main elements in our Evaluation number one is the team. So it's this analysis of character, trying to surmise people's motivations and commitments. Um, the next thing would be that potential market size. And then the last thing would be the product. Um, that's the least important because it's so early, things are going to change. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to learn things from customers. You're going to have to make all sorts of adjustments uh, that we have to know you're the team that's capable of doing that. And, and really navigating that uncertainty. Uh, so those three elements for us, because we're early, because of our, you know, our style and what we do, yeah, we just believe in the team. It's probably like 80, 85% of, of our decision. Yeah, at the, uh, giving people a $1,000 grant is really interesting because mm-hmm. I, I think I've heard this, this saying, like, give someone 20 bucks, you'll never see them again. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan. I don't do this literally. No one hit me up for $20. I'm not going to give it to you. But like, yeah. I'm a big fan of metaphorically doing that where it's like, someone asks for my help. Yeah, sure. You get $20 worth of my help. And I'll just see what you do. And I do it all the time. <laughs> and then it's like, if I give you 20 bucks and then you, mm-hmm. I never hear from you again. All right. Well, I know who you are. Good, good day to you, sir. Uh, yeah. Or madam. Um, God, yeah, I was in a, I was, I heard someone talk, I can't remember who, but they just put money on the lectern and they <laughs> said, you know, here's, here's 20 bucks. Anyone want it? And it was in the auditorium classroom setting and no one got up to get it. It was like people, <laughs> they didn't think it was real or they didn't want to embarrass themselves. They thought there was some trick, you know, finally after some goading, like someone walked up and just took the money and was like, all right, great. And it was meant to be some example of like inefficient markets because there's this old thing about like an economist, if he sees a $20 bill on the sidewalk, he says, don't pick it up because the market is so efficient. If it was real, the market would recognize that that was 20 bucks. So it must be fake. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So yeah, entrepreneurship is all about that, right? It's all about seeing these $20 bills places that no one else sees. Yeah. 
and then recognizing that if uh, just because no one else is doing it doesn't mean it's not to be done. I think I think there's an element of like stratification in terms of how people see problems of, mm -hmm. you know, that's just how it is or what about ism or tautologies where it's just like it is because it is, which yeah. irritates me. If I hear yeah. if I like I, I don't like personally, if I hear the if I hear a problem three times, I start getting twitchy about it. And yeah. so I try to like I try to filter what problems right. I hear. <laughs> but I have a couple of friends. They'll just call me and tell me a problem and then just just see what I do. <laughs> so it's not nice. That's funny. But, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. So Rene Girard, the, the mm -hmm. literary theorist, one of one of his big ideas is this theory of mimetic desire. Mm. He had this this thought that humans are are motivated by envy. We're motivated by uh, wanting to fit in, and so a lot of our desires are formed by just imitating what other people want. And and I think that's very true. Um, you know, sometimes you just see fads develop and and so on, and, and it's quite clear that that mimesis is at play. Um, but there's another book I'd recommend called, uh, it's a terrible title. It's called The Secret of Our Success. Hmm. And it's by a evolutionary anthropologist from Harvard named uh, Joe Henrich or Henrich. Not sure how to pronounce that. And he, uh, I, I guess the secret of our success, our success, he means uh, hu humanity in the successes in, in the landscape of evolution. Um, and so the secret that he writes about is our ability to imitate, is, is, is that that's how we pass on knowledge. That's how we learn. He has some very dramatic examples in the book about very smart people dying in difficult environments, whereas, uh, you know, the, the Eskimos, for instance, in the Arctic, it's like they don't have to have knowledge about the Arctic. They just have to know how to survive. And they rely on a lot of traditions that they pass down that they just imitate. That's how they teach the next generation. So I find it's a nice balance. Uh, it's like imitation isn't bad or good in and of itself. It's, is it optimal? Is it towards the good? Is it doing something well? Uh, so I don't like the way that's always characterized, but I think you're right. It's like, just cause you see people doing something, you gotta be careful. Uh, there's a famous uh, problem in um, sort of decision theory to illustrate something called an information cascade. Uh, mm. And these cascades are when, you know, one person, acts on their own information, but it's wrong. And then the next person acts on that person's information instead of their own. They, they sort of set this cascade in motion. So an example could be, uh, imagine, um, imagine at the front of a classroom, there's going to be an urn. And it is one of two urns. Either it's an urn with 33 red balls and 63, 66 black balls. Or it's the other urn that has 33 black balls and 66 red ones. All right, you don't know which urn it is at the front of the classroom. Uh, one person at a time is invited to come to the urn, pull a ball, which no one else will see, and then write down on a piece of paper which urn they think it is. Okay, so what's the decision theory here? First person walks up, they pull a ball. Let's say for the sake of argument uh, that it's a red ball. You should always say that whatever ball you pick, you should guess, okay, it must be the urn that has that color majority. So in this case, it would be the second urn. He's going to write, okay, I think it's urn two. Um, next guy comes up. He pulls a red ball too. He puts it down. Second urn. Next guy comes up. He pulls out a black ball. He should write down on the piece of paper that he thinks it's urn one. But now he's looking down and he sees the two people mm. before him wrote that it was the second urn majority red. And he might think twice. And let's say he says earn two. Now, all of a sudden, we have an information cascade where no matter how many black balls someone pulls, 
they're going to say, oh, but everyone else thinks it's the second one, right? Mm. So I think that sort of dynamic sets these in, these cascades into effect, and then people just start imitating each other. And I would extrapolate this out to the college example. I think there was a time, like college pays. Uh, why does it pay? Well, because uh, for all sorts of reasons. And in the past, it was much cheaper. It worked for people. The baby boomers had extraordinary success going to college. Um, but now you can't just imitate that strategy. We hit one of these cascades that took off where people just said, oh yeah, that's what, that's a smart thing. That's a smart thing. Uh, and they, they, they weren't paying attention to the underlying conditions or what the education was really doing. And I think that's what's led to the current situation where we have all this debt. We have all these people who are miserated by the system. Um, and I don't know, all the other political problems as well with, um, you know, the polarization of faculty and so on. Yeah, the principle applies to group dynamics as well. There was a mm. study in, in, that I remember, I don't remember the name of it, but it was in neuroscience where if you get like eight people in a row and you have like one person who's actually the one being studied and everyone says yes to something, even though it's a no answer, the person at the end will, is like really unlikely oh, to yeah, say no. Right. Yeah, right. That's a great one. I, I think that's I used Solomon to, Ash maybe mm -hmm. I think was the psychologist on that. Yeah. I use it all the time. Well, if you have a good sense of the group you're in, you can start asking like, are we ready to go to the people that you know are going to say yes? <laughs> <laughs> and then if you know the people who really suck at making decisions, you put them last and they'll just say yes. Uh, which there's a couple, there's a couple people in my family that suck at making decisions. So I, you, if you, if you structure your group dynamics, right, you, it makes things a little easier. Yeah. Um, but there's a, a, another similar thing to, uh, believing something that's true. That's not true. Where mm. I think most people have heard of like, don't be a lemming, but right. actually le lemmings were induced to run off that cliff. Like they were like forced to kill themselves. Like they <laughs> no. were, they, they didn't want to like, it's not like a bunch of lemmings, like follow each other off the cliff. It's like yeah. a human was like, Oh, this would be great to, you know, black and white footage. So there's an element of like, you know, uh, you know, question everything, I guess. But oh, when, man, that's great. When, uh, so there's a, a story with Joe Rogan when he was, uh, I, I was listening to his show and, um, his wife, he was golfing with a guy and the guy cheated on, I don't understand golf, so I'm not even going to try to explain how he <laughs> okay. cheated, but he cheated on like a really stupid thing. Mm -hmm. And he was, uh, Joe was about to do a business deal with him. And his wife was like, don't do it. He, he cheats. And he's, he's like, well, it's just golf. Who cares? And so oh, interesting. Uh, leads me to a larger role where it's like what people do in the, uh, the, the, the smaller things is how they extrapolate to the larger things. Cause mm. that, that guy for that story, for instance, like would later try and steal from Joe. He like, he was just like that type of person. Right. And so, are there other, uh, I don't know, like truisms or whatever the word would be, have you noticed in like people's behavior where you can see something smaller, something that people don't know to keep a, a bottle on that lets you get a sense of who they are? I think especially over people, time. Yeah, I think if people don't know they're being watched, it's even better. So if you go to a restaurant with someone and you notice that they're mean to the waiters, yeah. <laughs> uh demanding and so on but then they turn and they're nice to you because they need something from you or something i think it, little interactions like that can be quite meaningful i think um stress is good yeah i had an advisor in, in college that said if you want to know what people are put them in a situation that like 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 almost like really pisses them off and see how they operate yeah god i i, I someone recently put together a collection of steve jobs emails and interviews published mm. on on the internet. I forget what it's called, but it's, it's a wonderful collection. And what, one of the things in there that was kind of neat was this interview with jobs about uh, how he interviews candidates. Hmm. Um, and so he said he would look up before the interview, what products people worked on in the past. 
and he'd pick the worst one. And in the interview, he would bring it up and, he, and he'd be pretty harsh about it. He'd be like, hey, you worked on this product and it's a bozo product. It was a piece of shit. Why would you work on a piece of shit? And he did that because he didn't want, he says he did, it wasn't necessarily to criticize their work or the product. It was more to see how they would react. And if they totally caved in, he was less interested in hiring them. He wanted people to work for him who would defend their, their ideas. And so the people who pushed back were like, oh, what are you talking about? That was a great product. Here's what I loved about it. And so on. Uh, he was more interested in. So that's kind of, that's, that, I, I haven't ever gone that far in an interview. Mm. But like uh, Teal is famous for a, a question that throws people off. Now that it, it's circulated and talked about, it's not as useful. But uh, there was this question like, what do you believe to be true that the rest of the world thinks is false? And if you hadn't heard that question before and you're on the spot, it could be quite revealing. Hmm. Um, you know, some people would like fumble because maybe they haven't really disagreed with the consensus uh, or they'd come up with a really small example or something they thought was contrarian, but not. So I, I remember it was like if if someone was from San Francisco and they come in and they're like, oh, well, you know what? I'm an atheist and we live in this religious world you're like ah yeah i don't know i live in san francisco a ton of atheists there that's not that contrarian but if you were from alabama and you're like hey i i'm an atheist and i don't believe in god all right that's more interesting right so the context mm -hmm. would always tell you more um and uh and then yeah if someone just rapid fire was like okay here are five ideas you know i don't believe we landed on the moon i think it was a hollywood production <laughs> you know it's like suddenly it's like okay this is an interesting person maybe they're a little nutty but that could be good mm -hmm. i imagine what i would do in that scenario and I, I try to imagine not having the answer like the question posed to me in advance i feel like i would just sit there for 20 minutes and then give an answer i don't know if i well <laughs> like, i appreciate hmm. that too i think that's quite revealing is is one you're comfortable with silences in a high stakes meeting which i think is important it's good for people to collect their thoughts and then maybe say what they truly think. Um, a lot of people, I think, grow uncomfortable uncomfortable with the silence. And so they rush into saying something. Um, Peter actually is is really you know, good at this in the sense is like he'll sit there. Some, you could ask him what his favorite color is and he'll pause for like four minutes thinking about it, look out the window and then come back with an answer. Um, so I think, yeah, that level of, uh, comfort being in a room and not feeling like you need to say something this minute, I think that's, that's quite valuable. Mm -hmm. well, that's, that's good to know anyone out there who are thinking similar things, you know, mm -hmm. you can relax a little bit. So one thing <laughs> that I believe you and Peter talk about, uh, I want to find it on my notes. Um, mm -hmm. I think I actually, I think this might be a, more of a you thing, but you, it's about uh, paraphrasing, but you basically say something to the effect of if you're reading a paper on it, it's already too late. Like you're not on the cutting edge anymore. Yeah, and the way right. that you stay on the cutting edge is talking to so many people. We've talked mm -hmm. about outreach, like $1,000 grants, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, I think you talked about like weird, weirdo bro brokers, or maybe that's just how I wrote <laughs> yeah, down. Yeah, that's, yeah, that yeah. is a word so, we use. Yeah. Okay, great. So, well, I know some people, you know, my, my, my notes of notes, it's like the game of telephone <laughs> a little bit, but uh, how do you find weirdo brokers as someone who's like always trying to learn new things, learning mm -hmm. a whole, th this is like, I'm going to take whatever you say. So much yeah. like, how do you <laughs> okay. find these people? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, so that is something I said about if we've mm. read about it in the newspaper, uh, it's probably, it's too late. Um, hmm. you know, maybe like a published scientific paper, less too late. Um, and so what I mean by that is 
we like even if someone is if the New York Times is writing about a scientific breakthrough, it's already been discussed in that community for some period of time. There are researchers working on it. Investors have probably combed through it. These newspapers are actually quite late to the scene often. Um, and I, I noticed, uh, and I get into this in my book due to my personal story and my weird interests, I just learned a lot about uh, spycraft, <laughs> intelligence <laughs> gathering. And one of the things that stands out in a lot of the books on the history of intelligence, especially the CIA, there's this real uh, bifurcation in, in that community between uh, intelligence that's gathered through people, which is human intelligence, and then in signals intelligence is the other side. That would be information collected through technological means, through communications and so on. So that that would be like the NSA hoovering up data about phone calls and so on. Um, uh, I think the signals theory is, is really valuable. Um, I think, okay, maybe that helps uh, us understand the bigger picture. But what I, I learned and what we do is we really have to depend on human intelligence because of what I just said is like the there really are people working in a garage. It really is the case that maybe five people in the world are experts on a topic and no one else knows about it. And so to really get to know who they are, I have to find the people who know them and then maybe the person who knows that person. So it really is this gumshoe uh, or shoe leather. What is the, the, the term? Uh, effort to find people. Um, and now those people might not be the ones we invest in, but at least it it gets us up to speed on, on something that's happening in a uh, frontier of technology. Um, how we do it is, is basically how I do my job, which is uh, I'm on the road, I'm taking meetings, I'm always trying to, let's say, if it's a university campus, I want to be in touch with different student groups. Oftentimes, mm -hmm. I'll uh, go to an event on campus. It could be a hackathon, but maybe I meet people associated with that hackathon and I want to get coffee with them. I have a playbook I'll go through, not, not like robotically, it's not some protocol I kick in the action, but I'm always kind of probing like, hey, you know, not I'll, I'll want to listen to this person I'm talking to, but at some point I'm going to drop the question like, hey, is there anyone else I should meet or anyone else on campus you think is doing really cool stuff that I should talk to? Uh, and in that way, I'm just swinging vine the vine, meeting person to person, uh, trying to find uh, that that you know three or four people working in the in the lab or the garage that no one's paying attention to. Um, so yeah, that, I I think that's our competitive advantage is that we're willing to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> A lot of VCs want to sit in their cozy offices and just type on the computer, uh, oh, do a search on on some website to find the cool thing. And I, I think that's bonkers. I, you know, maybe it's good for them, but this is our style. We got to get ahead of the curve and really yeah. meet people. Now the weirdo brokers, what I discovered, what we discovered was that, okay, there are certain people that we meet who are really good at collecting weirdos. They mm. just seem to have a, a bunch of them in their lives. And I don't know what that archetype is <laughs> um, or why that's the case. Uh, they just seem to be super connected in their communities, uh, wheeler dealers, uh, hmm. editors, organizers. Um, and once you find them, they they make all sorts of inter introductions for you in, in that world. Uh, so, yeah, we, we're, we're always looking for weirdo brokers, too, because those are like points of contact who can point us to other people. I don't, and in history, you know, one of the recent examples I found was uh, this poet, Ed, Ezra Pound, who 
never really produced a substantial masterpiece in poetry on his own. I think he has remarkable writings and he, he was an innovator. But what blows me away is that this guy was like a weirdo broker who launched modernism as we know it. It's like he discovered Hemingway, T.S. Eliot, James Joyce. He edited their work. It's like if you went to Paris in the early 1920s and you found Ezra Pound, you found modern literature. Uh, so that's the type of person um, we think of as a weirdo broker. And Pound was pretty weird. He had, Eventually he went nuts, uh, became a fascist, <laughs> and uh, was thrown in jail. Um, so maybe, you know, they're, they're not, uh, always the, the, the moral exemplars, but it's interesting that there, these types of people are out there. Yeah. I think it's often said that, uh, the line between genius and, and insane is like people usually ride that. <laughs> oh, that and madness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. Thank you. Um, I, I was, I, I, I was thinking some of the other fringe benefits of doing it, the peer method, because I, mm. I believe in one of your talks or in one of your, uh, something you wrote about was that you don't do top down of like, if it's organized by the institution, it's not something you go towards because it's usually not yeah, as authentic. That's something, yeah. We but, noticed uh, that on campus, right. If the administ administrators or the entrepreneurship center, it's always just so top down adult supervised. Yeah. I don't It just doesn't draw the more interesting people to it. Yeah. Uh, well, I was thinking that I, I imagine if people like Elizabeth Holmes, for instance, like she got where she was because she would leverage people up, 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 and up. So if mm -hmm. you were going top down, you'd be fooled by her. But if you went from her peer group, they would say, don't go towards Elizabeth <laughs> Holmes because she sucks. Yeah. So like, I think that also has that element of. Uh, That's interesting. So yeah, they're up, seeing a little bit more. Up, you can go up and across. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, that's a good point. Because people usually talk up if they're not great people like they'll talk mm. good to the like you talked about with the the wait, waitress doesn't see the waitress as a, a great human sees yep. you as someone to impress so they're gonna be nice to you yeah, then you say right. something That's nice to them point. yeah it's like she was successful um because she convinced outsiders you know people who were high status prestigious people to get behind her but if you were an insider to that world it's like she didn't have that support she didn't have uh, peers within you know the blood testing community or anything mm -hmm. like that who who would support her um, yeah. instead it was like old eminent men like henry kissinger or someone who like she managed to convince mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think the well it sounds like there's another benefit and you're doing it that way what mm -hmm. about um if you if there's like a, a like a George Church of a lab, mm -hmm. if you talk to them to find innovators in their lab, is that still useful or does it fall into the idea that it's institutional? Yeah, that's good. George Church is amazing. Um, yeah. He is a fascinating example of someone who has managed to marshal resources and some independence in, in a really productive way. Um, I, I, I've met him once. I certainly followed his work. Um, I don't know what his secret sauce is. So I, I don't know enough about his career. Like, how is this possible? Yeah, it was, it was just an example. It was just yeah. an example. It was just but the guy it, I was thinking about because I emailed him earlier. I know, but it's a good one. Um, so, yeah. And then and that leads to the next thing. So we, uh, I mentioned that when we evaluate things, we're always interested in commitment. Mm -hmm. uh, to build a startup from nothing to something, it's going to involve all sorts of twists and turns and ups and downs. There are going to be highs and lows, and the lows are really low. Uh, it can be a dark night of the soul. And, and to get through those times, you really have to be committed to what you're doing in a way that isn't just based on, let's say, money, fame, or fortune. It's got to be something deeper, 
or something, or, or sometimes we see like a band of brothers friends thing where people are just mm-hmm. in it because they love being with their friends. Uh, what it can't be is, Hey, I'm in this for the money because the likelihood of success is low. Expected value on that decision is pretty low. Um, so the commitment when people drop out of school to do something, wow, that is a strong signal that they're giving up this socially sanctioned path to do something unusual, real positive signal. They believe in what they're doing so much that they're willing to leave school. When we come across professors, sometimes it's like they have research that they think they can commercialize, but they're not willing to give up their cush tenure job uh, in order to commercialize it. Instead, they'll like have a postdoc who's going to take this intellectual property property and bring it to market and lead the company. And I guess there's a model there, but to me, it's like it's somewhat negative because if you if you're not willing to do this yourself, that's a signal to me as an investor that maybe it's not worth doing or the chances mm-hmm. of success are quite low. Um, but so yeah, we we tend to shy away as investors if we come across an idea like that where someone's like, oh yeah, it's my professor's IP and he didn't want to do it, but he said I could. But with George Church, it's interesting. He's created a situation where, they, I mean, he's done, his name is on like a, he's like the Genghis Khan of, <laughs> of uh, researchers or he has so many descendants. Mm-hmm. It's like all these spin outs or whatever. So I, I, yeah, I don't know. I said the same thing to him. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, <laughs> it's quite remarkable. And, and they've been successful. Like he's been yeah. part of a lot of successful things. So I, you know, that, that's great counterexample to my, my framework for thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's. I think uh, George Church, and I don't know if you're familiar with Bob Langer. I think he's over at MIT. Okay, don't know but, him. Oh, he's great. He's probably like the mm-hmm. greatest. I went. I met him in his office once, and it's just uh, mm-hmm. full of awards that he's gotten. Like he's gotten like the, the president award. He's like, I think someone did the math, and he's like saved like 100 million people or something. I don't know. He's a really oh, wow. cool guy. And uh, Robert Langer, Bob Langer, and he, uh, when he was first getting started, he would he would license the IP to people, and mm. then it would die because no, one, they didn't care about it. He would try to get okay. Roche involved, right? Yeah. But Roche would care about it just into the point where it didn't seem like it was it was like more frustration than the potential reward return. Mm. And so what he started doing, and I think this is so much what George was doing, is that uh, he 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 realized that if he didn't do it himself. Like no one else was going to care about it the same way, so then he started pulling mm. on stuff, and oh, okay. um, and that had an entire different effect. And I think he's still interesting. Okay, yeah, I, I think he has like a really big office. I mean, uh, like lab. Like there's a lab. lot of people yeah, there. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The office is like not big actually. I don't think he's there a lot, <laughs> and it's uh, it's got yeah. like you know, two to three inches on all surface taken up by plaques. But um, wow, yeah, he's, yeah, he's a really interesting guy. Now, as it happens, we had some of our old Till fellows who had no undergraduate degrees. I think there's at least one that went to work for George Church and mm. eventually earned a PhD without having any undergrad degree at all. So I love that he's also willing to think outside the box like that. Yeah, it, it, I think it's one of his things where uh, if you if you have like a really unique idea mm. and you, you know, like similar to you, I think mm-hmm. you're using your vehicle that you learned from Peter Thiel to yeah, help people right. make change. I th- his is he learned from his PhD, which I he never really thought he'd ever get a PhD. If you ever read the book Wooly, you get to get a little uh, okay. biography on. Yeah. It's being made into it. It's it's pretty good. It's like uh, our version, the modern version of Jurassic Park, in <laughs> in terms of uh, the Wooly Mammoth being brought back to life. Yeah. Um, other than reading and, and talking to people, are there? Mm. With the like the new AI tools like ChatGPT, et cetera, mm. that you can think of, are you using any tools to stay on the cutting edge? 
I'm thinking specifically of this example of Teddy Roosevelt, where before he would meet someone, he yeah. would read everything he could on that subject, so then he could have a really informed conversation. Oh, on interesting. Them. But uh, I'm I haven't. Yeah, yeah, I haven't used uh, ChatGPT or any LLM yet hmm. for research purposes. I feel like I need to just because I, I want to get a sense of what the tool is like and what it's for. Um, yeah, I, I follow the blogger Tyler Cowen, the economist, writes uh, Marginal Revolution. And he he says he's now reading with ChatGPT up in front of him, especially if it's like a nonfiction research book. And he'll query things that he's reading about in the book. And he says this is like creates a much richer, more informa or informationally rich uh, experience. Mm -hmm. and, that's why I, I like for it yeah okay yeah i haven't done that quite yet and i'm I'm curious maybe i should i should give it a shot it's really efficient the well, one thing i always like to do is i i ask mm. it to a man you know you could like you set the query parameters like imagine you're you know george church uh <laughs> and, you're, and you're trying to get people the 20 percent of tools for CRISPR engineering uh to develop this type of product like what are those 20 percent that they need to understand very thoroughly mm. to, to develop it and then i take that and then I, I read more about it. Like it, it saves a lot of time. It condenses a lot. And then I can just read about four or five things and get like the 80%. I forget mm. it's like a, a different type of power law. I forget the name for it. It's like, I think it's Peter P something, but, um, the, like the okay. 20%, yeah. oh, the Piotr, Piotr, Piotr rule. It's P something where it's like 20% of, uh, of actions have 80% of results. Oh, uh, Pareto. Thank you. It, yeah. the P, P was there, uh, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, funny, funny enough, Twitter, I think, I think Elon did a similar thing with firing because he's down to 20%. So he <laughs> laid off 80. So, so I wonder if, if there was like uh, either he did that, uh, it, like it accidentally worked out that way or yeah. if he deliberately did it knowing it would work out that way. But um, the you talked about, I think on your Twitter, you, you've shared, you know, I don't know if anyone ever sees these things, but it's like they show like the 2000s, or the 90s, like people in high school and it's like the montage. Oh, and yeah, it, it, right. you, I think you said some of the effect of like, you know, people feel nostalgia, you see a prison, <laughs> which I agree. I didn't know you could test out of high school. I felt so betrayed <laughs> when I learned this. So I hated that. It's such a, a waste of time. But yeah. There is there is an element of like locked in syndrome when you're going through K through twelve, mm -hmm. and you you enter the world, especially nowadays, where if you're if you're going through K through twelve and you enter the the workforce, you're not competitive at all. I don't mm. I I think in in this time right now compared to any other time in history, the education system I think is actually setting people up for failure because it's a uh, it's one bit built on the model yeah. making factory workers blah blah blah. But we agree with each other. How what do you think <laughs> about um, what do you think about how to unlock people's brains mm. from that locked in syndrome? How would you take someone who is in that narrow focus of K through 12, you know, achievement for memorizing tests and then forgetting it five minutes later right. and then getting them to a state where they could be challenged to take these type of 1000 grants to, to, to find their curiosity. I, I have some ideas, but I'm curious what you think about this. Cause I wanted this all the time. I feel like there's a whole generation of people. Yeah, are about to be left I, behind. I think that at the highest level, it's just awareness and exposure. Mm -hmm. So I, I grew up in the eighties and in nineties and startups didn't really become a thing until 95 uh when i was you know ending high school into college and um and so i just didn't know that like you could you could do these things fast forward to today i still think it's the case that you know as as prominent as startup culture is in silicon valley success i think there's just like a lot of people out there who don't know what's possible they go to career day and they still just see a lawyer and accountant and a doctor yeah. or something traditional. So I would just love to find a way to expose people more to, to the people working on these things or what's possible. Um, now, when it comes to actual like, okay, um, 
someone is in the K through 12 system, they're clearly not made for it, but they're stuck in it. What their parents don't know any better. What mm-hmm. do we do? Well, it would be interesting if we could get them out somehow and create one example, one, one path. It's like, can this person do independent study um, and, and really uh, get a GED or, you know, there, there are some homeschooling type things where you can, you can affiliate with different programs and end up with a high school degree, but you're, you're on your own pursuing your own interest. Uh, Waldorf schools are like that a little bit and Sudbury, especially schools. These are all schools like that. They're out there. Um, but if we get people on those paths and there are more examples of them, then the other person on the margin is more likely to do it. Yeah. The question is like how you get started. Um, now, here's the thing. It's like I think education is hard. <laughs> I think learning is difficult. It's really uh, uh, dis- it requires discipline and hard work. There's no two ways about it. So unless someone's really interested in the subject, it's going to be hard to get them to do it on their own. Mm-hmm. Um I think we're going to be, I don't know when this happens, but it could be five years. It could be 10 years. At some point, the LLM stuff is going to reach the ability, the capability. It's going to be the greatest tutor in the world. Yeah. Sense of it can communicate information to you. It can quiz you. It can probe you. It can offer resources and so on. At that point, I don't know what happens to K through 12 or even higher ed, because now all of a sudden I have, Aristotle in my pocket or on my laptop, uh, mm. and I should be able to learn anything when we define learning as improving performance along some dimension. Um, that doesn't include, uh, well, I guess it, it, not in the same way as like social interactions, working as a team, that kind of stuff, playing. Um, so when that happens, what does teaching become? I don't know. Maybe it becomes more like coaching because now it's like, okay, we need to motivate someone to get them to interact with their AI tutor um, mm. and and then you know move on their edge of competence towards more complex, more difficult subjects and 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 challenges and so on. Um, so I don't know what that takeoff looks like, but I think in the next few years, we're going to start to see more and more people who are fed up with the industrial K through 12 system where they're just learning way more on their own because they're naturally curious and their AI tutor is just fueling that, you know, leading them to the next thing one after another. That, that really excites me. Yeah. I think the, 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 the framework that you you've talked about in a previous interview of Mm. apprenticeships coming back, I think that that might be the model because there's a, there's a book, I think it's right there. Uh, Walter Isaacson's uh, Ben Franklin, one of my favorite okay. books. I've, yeah. re- I've read pretty much every book on, on uh, Ben Franklin. He's my, he's my hero. But when he, when he was a kid, his dad was like, crap, Ben Franklin's going to run off to sea because that's what his brother did. And Ben Franklin always has a, a love for the sea. Yeah. And uh, so what he did is he took him for a, to a bunch of different potential apprenticeships. And he just watched Franklin and how he, he, he would interact with them. It's like, does is there any element of curiosity, oh, excitement? Yeah. So, I could see the there's an element of like you get to expose people to a bunch mm. of different options, and then you have the AI that can personalize the the learning to match what you're strong and weak against, and then yeah. give you the personalized care right. to like That's get over great. different arms. Yeah, so, so it I, orients I, you towards you get yeah. that natural motivation because there's something about this. I don't know what it what what it is. It's like math or history or whatever, but you you gravitate towards it, and then your natural energy is going to propel you to to overcome mm-hmm. the the difficulties of learning i love that yeah it would be it'd be interesting if 
with all this technology, we go back 300 years in terms of how we do education. Yeah, I That'd think the future cool. is the past in education. Yeah. There, there are some like one of the most famous studies is called Bloom's Two Sigma problem. This uh, researcher Benjamin Bloom was a psychologist in education, and he looked at different learning techniques and uh, methods of instruction, and so on. And and by far the most uh, impressive way to instruct people is is one-on-one tutoring it's like Mm -hmm. two standard deviations better than even small group settings um and so the challenge is like we just don't that you can't scale that it's like a tutor for every child in the world is crazy if we're thinking about matching one-to-one people but hey with uh ai on the laptop maybe maybe that changes Mm -hmm. and i'd love to see you know people really turn on the afterburner yeah, I think it, it feels like it's not too far off, especially with like I've been playing with a lot with ChatGPT mm. and I've been looking at some of the open source models as well, just for fun. Yeah. But uh, the the ability to synthesize and then you can take that and run with it. It's pretty like I, mm. I, I look at it many different areas because I have a variety of interests and I talk to a variety of different people. Yeah. And so what would normally take me like 10 hours to get to a sense where I could have a conversation like this, I can do it. I can get like the like. I can get much deeper and mm. like a tenth of time and spend like that nine hours like having fun like yeah, exploring wow. different like crevices of it and then i, I can ask hopefully better questions yeah, but sometimes they're cool. a little bit too esoteric so you guys start a little broader <laughs> than working um I'll, I'll mention one sci-fi novel i really mm-hmm. enjoyed called the diamond age by neil stevenson it's mm-hmm. this wonderful uh, it's, it's a strange future post post nation state world a little chaotic uh and the story centers on this engineer who was tasked with making four AI tutors for four rich children. Um, mm. And and I guess the AI is, is attached to the, like this iPad thing called the primer. Um, and so he's commissioned to make these things. Well, one of the, the iPad primer AI tutor objects falls into the hands of this young woman in a, in a slum. She's very poor and she's a, a child. And so she grows up with this AI tutor. And by the end of the novel, she's like this queen marshalling an mm. army. And so it's this wonderful story, uh, like coming this Bildung's Roman set in the future involving an AI tutor. I, I, I really love this story. It's a, it's a bittersweet idea because mm-hmm. there are people today who are dying, never achieving their object, you know, their potential. Yeah. And right. um, I mean, there's, there's stories of people from, I forget his name. I think it starts with an R. Right. But mm-hmm. um, that came from India that was just like a basic math textbooks. Oh, Ramanujan. Yeah. Th- yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah. The how many how many people just. Um, yeah. How many people like him are out there, but yeah. they never got that textbook in their hand or yeah. they didn't get inspired or they didn't see that something was possible. Mm-hmm. And then you have the people that uh, do have the abilities, but they're not Oppenheimer. There's a funny story. I don't remember what book this is in, mm. but there's a Oppenheimer literally stabbed a dude when he was in in college, and they were like, <laughs> "He's a genius. Let's let it slide." Whoa! This, no way. Yeah. Well, you know, if you got the right, you know, his credentials was his brain, and so yeah. the, there was another guy who was walking like five miles to get to the university, mm. and all he needed was to be able to like start college like ten minutes later. And they wouldn't work with him. His IQ was it was higher than Oppenheimer's, and he just works on like a a, a ranch now and writes books for himself. He doesn't oh even publish God, them. Wow. Just ima- like the sadness of that, where God, like weird, a ten right? minute difference, one admin person not being empathetic to someone else. Jeez, nuts. Yeah, yeah. But uh, for you, 
I don't know what member I don't know what age Teal was and you were respectfully to each other mm. uh, when you when you first found each other and he men mentored you a bit. Um but I was early thirties. Yeah, yeah. 30, 32, 33. Yeah. And then so are you finding people like yourself, like you know, that similar relationship to mentor up? Not uh so we we uh our fund started as two people me and danielle now we're up to to five including us so three other people and in a, in essence even though they're technically employees there is this sort of mentor relationship where we i i think the business of investing is very much a apprentice master model where uh a lot of tacit knowledge is accumulated that's knowledge that can't be explicitly written down and passed on. You just have to be there. It's embodied. It's in the interactions, the questions you ask, the things you care about. Um, and, and so, yeah, we, we have some, a small team, but in essence um, it's, it's a little bit like that relationship. I think that was my aim in writing my book was to put what knowledge I had and could express as difficult as that was down on paper. I hope it, it leads to all sorts of, conversations with with people I'd love to talk to. Um, when it comes to abstract mentorship, like if I meet a young man and and he uh, you know is looking for guidance, I'm pretty good at like one-on-one -on -one conversations. I haven't figured out like, okay, I'm I don't know. I, I, it's like, am I a wise person? I don't think so. So it's like, you know, maybe you shouldn't be asking me for advice uh, mm -hmm. when it's just about life. I'm I'm happy to philosophize on it and, and mull it over maybe even tell some jokes, but, but, uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't know how good of a mentor I am, uh, mm -hmm. but you know, hopefully I can lead by example at a minimum. Yeah. Well, the people in your team, the, I guess the one test would be what are they doing in like 10 years? Yeah, that's good. I like yeah. that. What? So I'm curious for the people that are on your team or that mm. uh, you're helping in this way, what's advice that you're giving them and what advice are you giving them to like, the opposite of this. Um, what, mm. what advice are you telling them to avoid? Ooh, you know, there, that's a type of person out there. There are people who are very good at taking bad advice mm. <laughs> and thinking it's good. Mm. Um, okay. So yeah, there are different people I work with. I mentioned people on my team. Well, we make investments and we work with startup companies. When we invest, it's you know, two, three people. We'll meet with them every two months or so to go over, oh, you know, what, what happened over the last two months? What were the goals? What are the plans for the next couple months? Okay, what's what can we do to help? Um, and those conversations can be business oriented. So it'd be, you know, what I think about the strategy or maybe they need to make some hires and I might be able to find a way to help them reach the right people. Uh, so those are really like, it feels like the mechanics of it. It's not like to the soul of, Mm -hmm. Like, hey, you know, why are you doing this? And, and so on. Um, so I feel like there's nothing concrete I can say that applies to a lot of cases that might help your audience. Jeez. Mm. Um, so I think um, I think it comes back to this theme we've touched on a, a few times, which is you got to fight hard to be yourself and really trust your own judgment. A lot of people just want to outsource their judgment to others and, and merely copy what seems successful from the relevant refer reference class. So maybe you, you're a startup and you've gone through Y Combinator, the accelerator, 
And that program will tell every company in the in the batch, okay, here's the pitch that you're gonna say to investors. Uh, and here's you know the numbers in terms of what valuation we think you should go for and so on. And those can, those types of programs can be hot houses of groupthink. And mm. they don't really, you know, they're not good at giving specific advice to this specific company based on the context it's in. And so I think people really, yeah, just trust your own judgment. I think we're, as an inductive uh, matter, or rather, um, I think nowadays we rely too much on the thinking of others and in the way others feel and perceive. And I think we we ha- would do well if we you know, examine our own intuitions and gut feelings more and then really work on, okay, what is my context and what I'm working in? Context is king. I wonder to what extent our society is being run by narcissists. The ones that just <laughs> thinking of themselves comes naturally to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. And uh, another thing Peter said a few years ago that I think has some truth to it is he, he thought that the people who uh, are on the autism spectrum, let's say, he, he thinks that they are actually quite successful entrepreneurs because they're less susceptible to these social influences than the typical person. You know, mm. they, they they are willing to just like do something and think to themselves and, and to how, you know, if someone thinks this is weird or unusual or whatever. Um, and I think there's some truth to that. I heard the story of a high level CEO who, when he would get a pitch that he was actually going to consider, he would say, write it down. He would just mm. like, he'd have him write it down because verbally everyone's like, like people are razor sharp in terms of mm. being able to manipulate you, but writing it down, you can just like pull it apart much easier. Yeah. 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 That's very true. Sometimes yeah. I like to try to pitch a company back to someone. It's like you pitch me your idea. And if I think I understand it, I should be able to pitch it back to you. And that's often mm-hmm. a good way to clarify thinking on things. There's a, a book called The Alchemist, where in that book, there was a man who wanted to find happiness for his kid. So he sent him to this wise guy. <laughs> and uh, uh, just the idea that he was a wise guy. But uh, he had... he had the, <laughs> It's like Marlon had, Brando and the Godfather. Yeah, that's what I pictured. <laughs> it's like, I don't think that's what the, the uh, what he intended, but now I'm picturing yeah. that. But so he told the kid to like, I think he filled up a spoon with milk or something, and he mm. had the kid hold it. And he said, go look around the castle and look at all the beautiful stuff and but don't spill any and so the kid went through the rest of the day and he asked him at the end like what'd you think of the castle and he said I, I don't know i was I, fo- I was too focused on the spoon oh and, wow yeah yeah it's like if you're too you know if, uh there's many different meanings to this love but it's someone with a pardon yeah i love that that's a nice yeah. little story there yeah. Yeah. Well, someone with a philosophy background, I, I read Aristotle and Plato in my free time, but I'm not like, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, big on these things. What, how do you have, um, schemas like that, that you think about as you navigate life? That there's a, there's some that I've heard about where like people just take like the next step, focus on the moment, like meditation, all these different things. But are, are there, mm. do you have a philosophy of life and, uh, parables like this that you think about often to help reinforce your philosophy? I, I think we're always, th- yeah, I think we're storytelling animals. Um, yeah. So um, I do, I, actually, yeah, I, I, I tend to think things are good if you can tell a story about it mm. <laughs> and it's exciting. That's generally a sense that, that maybe you're doing something that's fun if you're, if you're telling stories about it. Uh, so that in and of itself can be a pretty good heuristic. Um. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't have a systematic philosophy. If by that yeah. you mean like a theory of knowledge, uh, 
uh, ethic that I am fully uh, confident in as, as, as the truth of ethics and so on. Um, but I do read widely in the subject and I have my interests and so on. Um, you know, I, I, I studied ancient philosophy, but also moral political philosophy. So, you know, I'll, I'll still read widely in those subjects. Um, I think it's part curiosity, but it's also this hunger to ask these deep questions that might not have answers. They, they probably will remain mysteries. Um, but you know, what, what is the good, you know, Mm. what, what are the foundations of our moral judgments? Um, are we just, uh, you know these these creatures that have this this paint we throw in the world and and assume it's objective, or is there there's something out there in the world that that we're tracking? Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, but I love those debates and, and thinking about them. I, I like to think that every religion has like one percent right. If there is like mm-hmm. a, a deity of some kind, that like all of them have like one percent, and it's based on like our instinctual ability to see something but not be able to describe it. And so, <laughs> so if you like if you had like an ai like mash it all together yeah. if there was like some type of larger thing they'd be like oh there it's the god's in the code but like this overlapping venn diagram i like that um, that's good this, yeah. this constant assault on the ineffable mm-hmm. are there uh what are you currently on the lookout to learn more about so uh are, are there mm. types of people you're looking for are there problems or questions that you have I got interested in the history of the Renaissance and mm. it's this question like, you know, what, why did the Renaissance happen? I'm interested in these historic periods of creativity and I had, I, I knew some things about the Renaissance, but I hadn't really dug in. And, uh, I've recently came across two books by, uh, Mary Hollingsworth. Let me double check that name just cause I don't want to. I can't find it right away, but uh, she has some books where she's a historian who studied not only the Medici, but all these other princes and dukes and so on. And so just learning about that time period, I I love learning more about these episodes in history where we see a flourishing of some kind, whether it's the arts or science. It's always, it's always a place. It's always a time. There's always a birth, a rise and a fall. And, and I'm always, now I'm just curious about trying to get a handle of those dynamics better. Hmm. What if there's uh like key reasons why the fall happens? And if I think some people wonder, mm. is our technological ability now going to sus- sustain us to have either a sl- more gla- gradual fall if we like hit over the curve, or mm. if we'll just keep growing up like a hockey puck? But like like the yeast in a petri dish that's given too much sugar. Eventually, it spikes back down and dies. It normalizes the population. Well, but it could be the, the greatest bubble of all time, Western <laughs> civilization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just keeps going. I mean, you know, functionally, if it lasts for like you know another two hundred fifty years, like what what do we care? Like you know, it's not it's out of our hands. But you referenced um, a number of books. Mm. Are are there uh, some in particular other than what you've mentioned so far? This is usually just a temple question I ask. Yeah. But what are some books you recommend? Oh man, just out of nowhere. I, I need a good set of books I can recommend people like this. Um, mm. You know, it could be something like poetry. One of my favorite poets is T.S. Eliot. I love oh. his collection, The Four Quartets. Uh, it touches on some of these moments that you're describing where words seem inadequate, but there seems mm. to be something deeper to the to the experience. You haven't gotten um, too deep into poetry, so that'll be interesting. Yeah. Um, let's see. That that That's a book I give to people that, Mm. uh as a as like hey this is a gift that four quartets meaningful. yeah the four, four quartets. quartets 
uh, by T.S. Eliot. Um, what's a, a book, though, that I think everyone should read that's fascinating? Hmm. Zero to one. And then uh, <laughs> a new book called... Uh... Oh, well, Paper Belt's on Fire. Give that Thank you. Again. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of something unusual that I came across that was quite good recently. Hmm. Yeah, nothing that stands out. I, I I'm a sucker for spy novels, um, mm. so I highly recommend uh, a night in Paris. Long night in Paris is great. That's a a recent one that came out about Israeli intelligence operating in Paris. Um, there's a series by a man named Jason Matthews. He's a former CIA agent. There was a movie made. It's terrible. Stay away. It's, uh, but the the novel, the three book series he wrote, Red Sparrow, is just awesome. Mm. Uh, so I recommend those. There's a, a a book from someone who came on the show that I was mm. I'm, I'm recommending to everybody, but to you in particular that I thought you'd enjoy. It's called Breaking All the Rules by Jim Cantrell. He helped uh, oh, set okay. up SpaceX and stuff. But in in the in the book, he gets locked up by the Russians. What? Uh, they thought they think many things. I won't spoil it. Okay. I honestly don't I'm know why he would down. ever go to Russia. Like, it, I wonder why Breaking he ever goes to Russia. Rules. Okay. Yeah. Jump control. He, it just came out like a couple of weeks ago. Okay, wow, um, this looks great. Yep. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting because you get to see the whole like new space age from his eyes, mm. and you got to see so much of it. They get to hear about like uh, like uh, Elon Musk versus um, who's the bald guy, Jeff Bezos. Okay. Cool. And what what was the difference between the two of them? Because yeah, because uh, uh, ultimately the thing that set Elon like the talent that they were able to like pull mm. was one of the differentiators other than just like the fact that like Elon was going to be full-time on it. And Jeff Bezos was just finding yeah. it from his like pocket lint. But um, mm. there's like, there's a lot of stuff in there to okay. learn. Yeah. This looks yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, i check it out. And then uh, are there startup verticals that you haven't, that you're on, like, is there like, um, you're, it sounds like you're very agnostic. So there's not mm. anyone you're looking for in particular. Yeah, we say who over what. Uh, it's yeah. this, like I got to meet someone who's at the cutting edge because um, if I, yeah, like if, just as a, if it's in a newspaper, if I'm following a trend, if I just suddenly said, oh, I'm going to find the best chat GPT competitor LLM, uh, I mm. think I'm way behind. I'm not an expert yeah. in that. I think I got to meet people who are at the cutting edge on something and then they're going to bring it to me. Um, so, yeah, we tend to be agnostic on that. Now, that said, I think there are important problems that will remain problems and, and important no matter until uh, someone solves them. So that could be, mm. you know, cure for cancer, uh, slowing down brain or reversing brain degeneration, um, energy creation, uh, transportation, all, all these big categories are, are really important. And I think, you know, if you, if you just dive into like why fusion energy hasn't come about yet there are like so many unsolved problems if you like if you solved one of them you'd win a nobel prize mm. so if i if, if anyone's out there working on those things or interested in it um you know i i love talking to, to people about that and uh is there a good way to part one stay up to date and part two what's the best way to get to letting you know if they have a good idea well anyone can reach out to me i'm uh I have the poet William Blake as a handle on Twitter, William underscore Blake. You know, you could DM me or, or, or just tag me there. But if people want to pitch an idea, they're working on something, go to our website. We have a contact form that you submit on that, describe what you're doing and so on. Mm -hmm. It goes to me, Danielle, Zach, Nick, the other team members. We're, we're always looking through those. We meet a lot of people who just come in inbound that way. 
Um, and then where do you stay up to date on stuff? That is a art in itself. I feel like, um, you know, and maybe chat GPT is one of these emerging methods where it'll be able to tell you what the, <laughs> okay, what's going on in this field of science. Um, mm. and then it'll tell you like the top five papers published in that field. Um, for me, yeah, I rely on, I look every so often, I'll, I will read newspapers. I will buy magazines and books. I will uh, listen to podcasts. Um, I'm constantly just, you know, listen, you know, learning things, listening to things, reading things. Um, and then I'll also, you know, I, I, I don't have like a, a source where they're sending me research papers, but if mm-hmm. I hear something interesting, I'll start, you know, I'll download a couple papers and, and sort through those. Makes sense. All right, then, uh, uh, doing that uh, outro then, cause we're doing it together cause it saves, okay. you know, um, the, uh, those are all my questions. Well, actually, do you want to leave a, uh, do you want to, um, uh, do you want to ask a question of the people listening in terms of like what, uh, like a question that you have that's unanswered that maybe someone in, uh, can answer for you? That's usually when I ask oh, people, but then the, it's like, it's, it's really hard to answer. So it's like the Peter Thiel, like what's something that's contrarian. <laughs> uh, I've been dropping it. Yeah. Um, God, what, what's a good one on that? Um, I'd love to, yeah, if, if, I I don't I don't know a good resource on this, but I, I wish there was a resource that would like and there are certain wiki pages tied to specific subjects, but I'd love a place where it was like, okay, here are the top five unsolved problems in these different mm. scientific and technological fields. And I don't know what the resource is out there. So if anyone has any information on that, or if they're building one and and there's a way where it's like, oh, okay, I'm not a plasma physicist, but I want to learn about what are the top five unsolved problems in, in physics related to fusion? Uh, this is the place to go. It'll give me the resources to get up to speed on things, point my way. I, I'd love to see that. Mm-hmm. And p- please put that in the comments or email me and I'll email it to, to Michael because uh, I want that as well. I am constantly trying to learn new things. It's very, it's, it's very yeah. hard to, to learn. There's so well, many our, our education system is, is the opposite. It tends to be scaffolded yeah. where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you got to learn Newton. And then once you learn Newton, maybe you'll be ready for Einstein. Once you do that quantum mechanics, it's like yeah. it takes 10 years before you're like at the cutting edge. It would be cool if we reversed that. It's like, yeah. hey, I'm a beginner, but I want to know, you know, what's unsolved right now. What do we not know? Yeah. yeah especially with chat GPTs and others ability to translate into the whatever uh, writing uh, grade level that you're at. So you can yeah. just like give it a paragraph yeah, saying right. this, this is what I read at. This is what I'm comfortable mm-hmm. with. Translate this paper into to that yeah. type of language. That's the and then, shallow you know, end of the pool. I'm going to wade yeah. into the deep. Mm-hmm. but uh i i do want to thank everyone for listening so far and for um you know leaving great comments like it's really nice to hear from everybody and i want to thank you michael for being on the show and for encouraging everyone to stay curious and i hope everyone checks out your book as well but i just really want to um one person in particular to say thank you is to, to you for being on the show okay thanks Lowell. it was an awesome conversation thanks for having me